This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the very niche and kind of geeky details of modern warfare with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to analyst and researcher Russia Al-Akidi. Russia is from Mosul and she's going to be talking about how ISIS took over Mosul, how they held it for so long and how that now, even after the Iraqi army has defeated ISIS as a territorial force there, how ISIS is still operating in Mosul as a kind of underground criminal network. If you like what we're doing here at Popular Front, please do consider supporting on the Patreon. There's bonus episodes and all sorts of extras. Go to patreon.com slash popularfront. Or if you prefer, go to popularfront.co slash support. There are other options there. So firstly, maybe you can explain why is it Mosul fell uh, so quickly to ISIS when it did? Like Maybe you can go into the history of that for us. Well, there are two well-known reasons as to why Mosul fell so quickly. The first being the Iraqi military abandoning their posts instead of uh, defending defending the city against a convoy of 400 to 800 ISIS militants. Uh, the reasons until this day are quite unclear as to why this happened. Did they receive orders? Uh, was there simply no will to fight? Uh, it's, it's still unclear till this day. But the second reason... Uh, which is not so much discussed and, and um, not, not really studied. And it's how well established the ISIS underground networks had been for several years at that point. And to understand how these networks were established to begin with, we have to go back to 2003 and the beginning of the U.S. invasion of Iraq and the fall of Saddam Hussein's regime. So Saddam's army also abandoned, uh, abandoned their post. They also abandoned the city. And they left behind a massive arsenal of weapons that... Uh, were unmonitored and unchecked, and no one was really, no one really knows where they went at the time. And it took about a week until the U.S. Army actually reached the city, and by the time they reached, the weapons were gone. Another reason uh, why ISIS networks found it so easy to establish that doesn't really uh, go into account when talking about this was the introduction of new um, modern communication that Iraqis had been deprived for because of the economic sanctions. So we didn't have cell phones and we didn't have internet. And of course, when they first arrived in the country, people were consuming them um, also unmonitored and unchecked. So anyone can go and buy 10 to 20 new cell phone numbers without even an ID. And the reason why this is important is because these anonymous cell phones were probably the first way that they began contacting civilians to extract money and issue death threats. And uh, I'll talk about that later in detail. But going back to uh, going back to these networks, it's important to focus that on the fact that it wasn't just ISIS at the time. Meaning, ISIS was not, of course, did not exist at that time. That it wasn't just the jihadist network. Now there was a marginal jihadist network in the immediate fall of Saddam's regime in 2003 that had began gathering in the country, actually even prior to his fall um, by, by late 2002. But there were also people that simply rejected the new political process in Iraq. They were against the new Iraq to begin with. Some of them did not like uh, did not like the invasion. They did not like the sight of U.S. tanks in, this, in, in the city. And others simply rejected completely the political shift that took the power from the Sunni minority to the Shia majority. There was also that. And they wanted to focus uh, this sort of resistance or insurgency against the U.S. Uh, the U.S. forces at the time. But the jihadist networks were there. But at this time, they were kind of all operating uh, with the same modest operandi. They, uh, they, 
purchased these massive, massive, a massive number of cell phones, and they really exploited the the introduction of the internet to facilitate communication uh, with each other, um, making it very easy and it was and unchecked for. Again, the city at the time, also at the time, still there there was no presence of like a visible security force. Even there were U.S. troops in the streets. Things were relatively calm to begin with, but it was definitely the calm that was before the storm. Uh, the f- the first uh, visible or tangible um, impact that they ha- that these networks had began pretty much after or after the death of uh, of Oday and Qusay, which were both killed by the U.S. forces in Mosul. This is when. Um, these networks began issuing death threats using these cell phones. So what they would do is they would call certain individuals to, ex- to extort money uh, under the pretext of jihad. They would contact uh, wealthy people demanding money uh, for, for, this, for this jihad, and they would threaten them with either uh, harming them directly or killing a member of their family if they did not actually deliver, this, deliver the money. And this is when we can start to see the distinction between the jihadist networks and the other the other insurgency groups. So uh, the other insurgency groups they weren't harming Iraqis. Their attacks were focused on the U.S. Uh, on the U.S. Uh, troops. But um, when death threats were issued with against Iraqis and they were actually killed at the time, and this is also when we see that the jihadist groups began to absorb um, all the other groups as well. So by the beginning of 2006, we had the establishment of Majlis uh, al-Mujahideen in Iraq that uh, united pretty much all the jihadist groups. Uh, as for the other insurgents, um, some of them quit. They no longer wanted to be part of it because Iraqis were being killed. Other ac- others actually joined because it was the only way to fight this, the new Iraq and the new political order. Uh, and we see in 2006 things really heating up in Mosul. Assassinations uh, were carried out pretty much daily. Almost everyone had at some point received a death threat. Um, the university at the time, uh, it was very common to see um, different uh, decrees and sometimes even videotapes or CDs of people being beheaded or executed. They had a very, very strong presence. And that that's when they were emboldened enough to, sit, to actually carry out their first attempt at uh, taking over the city. Wait, this was this was 2006. You're saying? Yeah, exactly. So ISIS back then, what was it? ISI then? They tried to rise up in 2006. Yeah, so it was the Islamic State of Iraq at the time that was established later on in the year, and it wasn't a caliphate at the time, and it wasn't Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. It was Abu Omar al-Baghdadi, and he wasn't uh, he wasn't the caliph. He was Amir al-Mu'minin. So he was just he was Amir of that organization. They took over the city for about a week. Now, how they did that was a very sophisticated uh, campaign, where we saw the first massive use of VBIEDs in the city. They placed the VBIED and I think a few suicide attacks as well at almost every police station in the east side. And they went off simultaneously. So within four hours, there was over there were over twelve explosions. And again, the security forces kind of fled the area. They took over. They raised different flags, and uh, they were masked militants. Uh, and that lasted for yeah, it was exactly less than a week. And the Iraqi forces, uh, the Iraqi forces took took the city back. I think it was kind of a strategic a decision from their side to kind of. Uh, to kind of re- retreat, they hadn't really thought out what the next phase was, but it was it was heavily used in their propaganda. It was a way for them to establish their presence, and that the Iraqi the the Islamic State of Iraq was here, and that's when their here to stay kind of kind of began. 
um, they melted quickly into the city afterwards because, again, they were masked militants, so it was hard for the security forces to identify them. It was kind of a it was kind of a trial and error experience for them, but at the same time, the way the Iraqi forces dealt with it in the next phase was very problematic, and it was very beneficial for them because they were unknown. The forces, Iraq, the Iraqi security forces, ended up randomly arresting people um, in in a very arbitrary way that really didn't distinguish between civilians and didn't really take into account that you know arresting hundreds of young people at the same time isn't even exactly how the networks would operate they would just pretty much arrest everyone they would see yeah it's just going to piss off everybody then yeah exactly and it actually it really did mm. right so then how how did that affect when ISIS finally did take Mosul well, like I was saying, it was like a trial and error thing for them. They were just experimenting. Like a dry run. Exactly, yes, like a dry run. So this time, the next time around, they would be better prepared. They had a plan in sight. At the time, again, like I was saying, when they took over the city for a week, there was no end game to it. They just kind of wanted to, to show people that they were around. Now they realize, hey, we can actually do this. We just need to weaken the city even further. The, the military has its issues. We can infiltrate uh, the public sector quite easily because we've been extorting people for two, for almost a year now and no one has really done anything about it. Let's just establish our networks better this time and we have an end, we have an end plan and that is to establish, to establish an actual caliphate. Now this idea wasn't very popular uh, in Mosul at the time. I think in Iraq in general. There were people warning that this was what they wanted to do but no one really took it seriously. Just the concept of a caliphate was very alien. It was, it was, it was quite foreign and uh, no one took into account that this might actually happen. Over the next, uh, over the next few years, uh, it was extremely rough, meaning that the number of suicide attacks and VBIED attacks and assassinations, they just skyrocketed with very little actually happening um, regarding... The, I mean, the security forces, basically, they just did not know how to deal with them. They were not prepared to fight this kind of an insurgency. They were dealing, at this time, they were operating basically like a mafia, like a, like a, like a gang. Yes, their assassinations were targeted, public employees. Um, there were very few Shiites, for example, in the city of Mosul. Many of them were, were assassinated and killed. The Christians and, and Yazidis as well, they faced a- attacks. It was, yes, the... It, their, their targets were very uh, very well, very specifically chosen, but the way they were operating, the means that they were operating, it was something that the interior, the interior ministry just did not know how to deal with at the time. So they were like an underground cell at the time, but they still had power, right? They were starting to get a grip. Uh, yes, at this phase, their grip was, was very much strengthened, and they began to infiltrate uh, the public sector, the public offices in the city, uh, and it was very easy. All they had to do was just issue death threats. Um, at this at this point, some of the some of the officials, like uh, Nina was governor at the time, Athena and Jaffe, and this is not to exonerate him. I personally think he failed as a politician on all levels. Um, but he was faced with a very very tough choice. He was like, okay, my public employees, my engineers, my staff, they're being assassinated. And the security forces are not doing anything to protect them. I need to step in to do something to protect these people. And he thought that if he kind of, not cut a deal with them, but if he kind of gave in to their demands, which were mostly at the time strictly financial, that this would help save save his own staff, his relatives, um, his family, and also the, the people that were working at the government at the time, at all the public offices. 
And um, their demands also began to increase. So with every project entering Nineveh, the entire province, they began demanding a, a rate of 10 to 15 percent uh, at a tax rate, basically. That was, and this is how this is how they they amassed all that wealth. It wasn't really foreign funding, which, if you recall, in the beginning of of the ISIS phenomenon, that that's what, what everyone was talking about. What con- which countries, which foreign states are f- are funding this? This isn't. This is not an Iraqi organization. Actually, it's, it, it was very much an Iraqi organization. It was a, it was very local. The way they gained their wealth was also very local, and it became kind of normalized. Every project in the city. There was something to be paid for this insurgent to, to the dawla, that's what they would call themselves, which basically means state. And also because they were so local, they understood what was happening um, within the military at the time. Uh, they, they even managed to infiltrate that sort of, I don't mean infiltrate as in join the army. Uh, I just meant, I mean that they knew what was going on there. They knew, for example, there was massive corruptions within the ranks of the army. Uh, we have the, they ha- there was a phenomenon called the ghost uh, kind of uh, the ghost troops, the, the ghost uh, soldiers, where they did not really exist. They were not in the city, but they just were taking, they were just taking salaries. So there were soldiers on paper, like their names were there, but they were not present on the ground. Why? Why are they not on the ground? You mean people just taking pensions or taking wages and just not turning up? Mm-hmm, exactly. That's a big problem, right? Yeah, yeah, it really is. It happens a lot in Iraq, right? It was. It, it definitely happened um, in in the prelude kind of period. So before 2014, yes. And this was when they be, they were confident enough to carry out that surge. They knew the number of Iraqi troops inside the city and in Nineveh in general in the province were not 50,000. The number was was a lot less, and uh, they had enough finances. I mean, they had been feeding off the state for over seven years at that point, and uh, they had gained a fortune. It was over. It was hundreds of millions of dollars um, from from public money, and why not? They thought, okay, when we have a plan, and also I want to I want to emphasize a point. I, I kind of feel that I, I I've left out so far talking about the ideology. Uh, the idea the ideology was was absolutely important. They were people that supported them from inside the city, who actually believed in the idea of a caliphate and wanted this sort of strict Sharia Allah to rule uh, the country, or at least Ninawa or, or Mosul. Now, their numbers were not uh, were not very huge, but these were in they, these kind of um, these kind of you know individuals. They kind of played like an insider role. They were like feeding them information. They were giving them uh, giving them details. They were actually informing them who to threaten, who to who to extort throughout the years. Um, and this this went on also for this went on for a significant amount of time. And again, their numbers were not were not massive. But when ISIS actually decided to enter the city, these people were aware. So the vast majority of of Mosul, I would argue did not know exactly who the Islamic State were. They had their flags, no? Uh, y- yes, they, they did lift, they did raise the flags in, in, in certain areas, but I'm talking in general, like we're talking about a city of over 2 million. So uh, there were people, like I, was, uh, like I was saying, who did know about them. Some people celebrated. I mean, we saw the footage. They were raising the flag and they were you know, openly celebrating uh, the arrival of ISIS. But for the vast majority of people staying at home, they did not know exactly what ha- what what was going on. Those first 10 days um, since like June 8th, 2014, uh, it was it, it was very, very confusing for the locals there. It was so confusing that there was actually a parliament member at the time, um, Maysun al-Damluji, who had relatives in Mosul. She went on public television, television saying, these are local rebels. This is not the Islamic State. This is not Daesh. 
and this is a politician, a very liberal one, she would not have said that without being 100% confident that this was what, what she was being told was real. So even my own, my own family, my friends, my, my relatives, when I would talk to them, they, they would tell me, we don't know who these guys are. They look local. They're not dressed in the, you know, perception of what an ISIS militant would wear, like the, you know, the Afghan attire and the long beard. They looked like Iraqis. They were from rural areas. They had a local accent. They were calling themselves rebels. So it was very confusing. But within one week, when they issued their, you know, Islamic State decree, um, they were denouncing the Iraqi state. They were saying Iraq is a country no longer exists. We're going to demolish. We're going to demolish the borders with Assyria. And now Sharia Allah is ruling. Um, state nation has not worked for Iraq, so let's try Sharia Allah. That's when it kind of hit everyone that oh no, this is this is 100% ISIS. And uh, you know the rest is history. We all know what happened during those two years and a half under ISIS rule. And then you know, the, the military operation to retake Mosul uh, caused the city uh, massive damage. And the, the old town is like still, uh, was completely pretty much wiped off, wiped out, off of the map. And uh, the, there are still people like under rubble. And, um, and ISIS today, they kind of, or the Islamic State networks, they kind of find themselves in, a pos in the same position that they were in back in 2006. So while it has demolished as the caliphate, and this is probably the most... Um, overstated boring argument currently being said it's like literally been written a million times and it's very obvious um, but yes the networks are operating well let's talk about that because you know all the all the journalists are gone now because the fighting is over but the place is still in rubble corpses are still under rocks and from what i understand isis are kind of back maybe not back like you said they've been there but they're, they're operating in mosul again right maybe you can tell us how they're how they're doing that yes they are operating as we saw like recently there have been like there just last month there were two there were two VBIEDs and three people were killed in total um, and one of them was placed in a relatively relatively secure area so it does show us that they're also gaining confidence they're gaining confidence and they're they're stepping up their game a, a bit but they are struggling with it this time it's it's not as easy but it's very real like as you just said a car bomb went off you know people are still dying because of ISIS yes of course it's it's still a very serious threat Right. And so you said they're a gang now. Um, what are they actually doing? Okay, We have to look at the context right now in, in Mosul itself. So we have several different armed groups. We have the army, we have the police, uh, we have the federal police uh, and the police force and different militia groups as well. And what they're seeing, what this is from a, a, their perspective, how they're beginning to operate. And I'll talk about that later, but like how they're beginning to operate now, they're looking at the context. It reminds them a lot of the pre-2006 period. Corruption within uh, the local government and also within the, the military and security forces. And a detail I left out that I should have mentioned um, earlier. So when the Islamic State of Iraq and these insurgent networks insurgent uh, networks were issuing death threats and um, extorting people. Uh, civilians would actually go and, and go to the security forces at the time. They would go to the army and they would complain, this is happening to us. Now, there were specific, um, there were some soldiers that actually would then actually demand that the civilians pay them too. They'd be like, okay, you're, if you're, you're paying ISIS, why don't you pay us as well? So 
with the context today in Mosul and the complexity and the massive number of forces and different groups, there are also certain militia members and army members that are also extorting the people. They're demanding money from the people of, of Mosul. So, so, sorry, so just to get that straight, some of the security forces are extorting the civilians of Mosul even now after all of that they've just gone through. And not to generalize, of course, this is not every single person or every sing- every member of the military or even the militias that are doing this, but there are numbers of there are a number of them. And it started very early on. Um, and this is when kind of ISIS also manages to kind of say, okay, this is this is this looks familiar, because now there's discontent and there's anger, and we exploited this the first time. We might be able to do this again. Uh, and this it's it's not even it's not even a secret. Like specifically the militias, they're they're demanding um, they're demanding um, lo- a massive amount of money from from local businesses. Also, it's kind of like protection rackets in a way, but they they do have their salaries. And the Ministry of Interior doesn't really seem to be doing anything about it, even just addressing this topic in public, whether it's on uh, traditional media or social media. It's kind of it, it's kind of something that people are in denial about. Yeah. Do you think we're going to see, you know, obviously we're not going to see the return of ISIS in Mosul as it was, but it sounds like these things are not going to get any better. Well, corruption is still very widespread, whether it's among the security forces and, and how... Um, some of the some of the militants are are dealing with the people, or how the govern the local government is also sort of um, you know just managing things. Yes, there are a lot of issues. The city is very much in in rubble still, and uh, services are bad. Uh, there's a there's lack of employment. Actually, employment does not even exist. There hasn't been any attempts to sort of rehabilitate what had what has been damaged and isis at this at this point the networks are sort of lurking it's been hard for them also to reorganize and to regather but the longer these issues um stay without without any solution um of course they're gonna they're going to exploit it like they did the first time now corruption is so widespread and it's kind of all tangled and just just uh, recently the fairy tragedy that that killed so many um, women and children is just one example. And and just for anyone that doesn't know, maybe you can quickly explain that situation with the ferry um, recently. So um, what happened was uh, there was a, a ferry that um, would just kind of transport people from one side of the river to to the other. And uh, it basically just, just sunk because it was, um, you know, it was overloaded. That was, that was the reason. And also because of such high currents during, uh, during this season. Now, the owner of the ferry actually has recently been arrested, and he said that the reason he had to he had to overload and allow so many people on board was because a certain militia in Mosul had demanded three million dollars from him, and there was no way he was going to make that money by just operating as he should have been operating. So this this is a problem of it's actually a two sided problem. On one hand, it shows you that if it's proven to be true that the militias actually did extort him. And he had to do this. It just shows you the the level of, of corruption and how no one is really doing anything to tackle it. And the other issue is that there are obviously no regulations, no oversight. Like there were no life jackets on the ferry. No one actually uh, enforced the fact that there should be only 100 people um, on, on board instead of 200 something. Um, and it just kind of shows you that the city is operating basically... Uh, there's no law you know there's no the law is not being not being really enforced no one's really following and again this is something that isis and these different networks they just they can exploit when they want right um 
And when you said the gangs are operating in Mosul still, the ISIS gangs, how are they doing that? What's going on? Like, do they have some kind of hideout or are they just blending into the population or do people not know who they are? Like, how are they managing to operate? Uh, no, they're just, th- it's not that they're blending. Like, I, I think the, I believe the vast majority of them are well known. They're just kind of, hi- they are kind of hiding out. Like, um, they're not out very much in public. And how they're operating, again, we go back to how they were operating back in 2004 and 2005. It's pretty much, it's pretty much the same way. Uh, they're at this phase right now uh, where they're, they're at the assassination phase. And the target this time around has been the local mukhtars of, of the neighborhood. A mukhtar is essentially like uh, like a neighborhood sheriff. This is someone who knows the uh, original residents of the areas, like th- how long people have lived there. He knows the newcomers, um, who goes in and who goes out. Kind of like a village elder sort of thing. Yeah, p- yeah, yes, pretty much. They're actually, yes, most of them are actually uh, quite old. So this is, this, this is where... Th- the ISIS networks are at the moment. They've assassinated a significant number of, of these mukhtars. And the reason, um, the reason for, from my perspective, uh, is that they want to um, they want to make the newcomers in these neighborhoods like their own uh, their own members or you know people affiliated with them. So when they move into these new neighborhoods, there's no one who can kind of. Uh, record their movements like if the mukhtar is dead and and someone moves into the area who's new who's going to know this person is new who's going to know their background the mukhtar knew every single detail about the pretty much the family history of everyone living in that area so when a newcomer comes in and there's no mukhtar in that area it was it's like an it's like a fresh start for them they can start pretty much from scratch and this is this is quite a this is quite a significant and also a very dangerous phase um, in in where they're operating to begin with. Also, there are not many neighborhoods that have been rehabilitated, particularly in the west side of of Mosul. And this is led because they they were obviously very damaged during the battle to retake the city. And with this amount of destruction, it's it's become quite easy for uh, individuals that are not from this area and members of these insurgent networks to infiltrate then sort of just claim and claim a home that's like partially damaged and kind of claim it as their own especially families are not returning and we see this actually happening a lot in in the west and with no mukhtar to record uh, who this family is what their background was um, this is this is when it's it's quite this is when these three establishment of these networks become quite easy for them there's a big difference right between east mosul and west mosul you know obviously you're from mosul you'll understand it better than anyone so maybe you can explain that for us okay yeah so the the west uh west mosul is is the authentic uh part of the city this was the old uh the oldest parts of of the town uh, the the old town was there and it was the first neighborhood that were that neighborhoods that were actually established the east side was was pretty much rehabilitated um at the beginning of the last century, sometime between 1920s and 1930s, that's when um, the the relics, the Assyrian relics, were were discovered by by different exp- expeditions, and that's when life kind of pumped into the east side. It was pretty much just an abandoned land that was very green, but no one lived there. But it became the modern part, uh, modern part of Mosul. It was where the university was set, the modern hospitals, even the designs of homes. They were more westernized. They looked more like Baghdad than in um, other parts of Iraq. More than the West had a sp- very, very specific character to it. It was very Ottoman in a sense, and uh, because it was so old and, and it was not rehabilitated, it lost its relevance. Um, 
when modernity kind of entered Iraq within the 40s and 50s. Yeah, it's, I mean, it still had economic significance um, and the, the large markets were still there, but it kind of lost out to the, uh, to the, to the east side uh, of the city. We've spoken before and you told me about this story where like ISIS was set up in your bedroom or something after you'd left. Can you tell us that story? That's a that's an interesting way to put it. Um, and, and yeah, it's not a story though. It's like real life. So yes, um, after my uh, after my my family left the city, they left Mosul in in mid two thousand fifteen. They were there for a whole year under ISIS. Like my my parents, um, they confiscated our home and they turned our home into like an education bureau because we live in relative proximity to the university. I think, and they made they turned my bedroom into. Um, obviously some kind of storage for files so after Mosul was liberated my parents went back my mom called me and said we found resumes like a cv or cvs in your room that are like quite interesting and i I thought they were mine from all the jobs i had applied to previously and she said no these are not yours this is uh this is some um american guy and uh he wants to he wants to join isis and i said okay you need to scan that cv right now and i i need to see it (laughs) So it was a CV to join ISIS, like, please can I join? I'm a dedicated jihadist. I can work in a team. I can cut heads off with one hand. Actually, no, the applications that, that we found were uh, were to mostly university to become lecturers or teachers. Yeah, sure. <laughs> or a cook. <laughs> no, but this was a this was a proper CV, like a proper and it had a cover letter too and it um so he basically explained that uh he had he was very interested in the Islamic State and uh, he wanted to teach at Mosul University. Um, and you know when I when I first saw that I was first thing that crossed my mind was like okay this is Amer- this is an American cl- someone claiming to be American. I had no idea where he was at the time if he was in the states or was he in Iraq or I, no one knew. And uh, he wanted to join the Islamic State. What if this person is still in the United States and is trying to join ISIS and? What if, God forbid, he carries out a terrorist attack there? I need to get this. I need to get this to someone. So I contacted um, my friends at Program on Extremism at George Washington University. I was still affiliated with them at the time, and uh, they verified this person's email. So he had his phone number, his email, his previous workplaces. Like it was saying, it's like a proper CV, and um, they sent it to the FBI, and and his email was verified and turned out to be uh, he turned out to be in Syria at the time. I think that he joined ISIS for the reasons that you probably mentioned, but um, he found that the battle was too was too harsh for him for some reason, so he wanted to turn into academia. But this was the same man that was uh, his name was Warren Clark, and this was the same man that was recently caught by uh, by the SDF. Actually, earlier this year, the Syrian Democratic Forces did ca- did did catch him. Oh, shame. <laughs> um, what do you think is uh, going to happen now for the future? Um, for Mosul, you know, what what do you think is the most likely situation? Uh, I I believe the likely situation is going to be like the sort of uh, when we talked about the prelude to two thousand and fourteen, the period between two thousand and six and between two thousand and fourteen, when ISIS the networks were establishing and all of that. I believe we're going to see a repetition of this period here, but it's not going to lead to the return of the caliphate. I don't think we're ever going to see a caliph again in Mosul or elsewhere. But that. That period itself, when we see um, we see a rise in assassinations, in car bombs, in VBIEDs, and suicide attacks, perhaps in extortion, uh, that's gonna that's probably gonna drag on for a while. And I believe that if it's not tackled immediately and properly um, by the security forces, 
which is that's a whole different podcast in itself then it's going to very much exhaust uh, the province and uh, you know we noticed that that unless isis is in control and there's an actual caliph you know ascending some mosque in mosul in all black attire looking like he's from the seventh century it doesn't really grab attention uh, you know, someone in Europe or, or the United States hears that there's violence in Mosul, a car bomb went off in the city, people are being extorted or kidnapped. The first thing that they're going to think of is, okay, but there's been violence in Iraq for 16 years. How is this different? And this time around also, there's not so much attention from the rest of, of the country. Um, as long as these networks or ISIS itself is not advancing towards Baghdad or towards the south or towards the Kurdistan regional government, the Karaji area, it's kind of like, okay, you know, whatever. This has happened before. It's not a big deal. We can contain them in this um, area. Whereas Nineveh is a massive province. It's uh, It has nearly 3 million people, um, over a million refugees in different uh, camps um, across, across the area. You have also relatives and and people affiliated with isis entire um entire refugee camps of these um, women and children that we don't even know what to do with no one is even talking about this and it might kind of seem like small problems to baghdad but this is not uh this is not a problem that we want to deal with in the future this can accumulate and result in a storm that no one wants maybe not in a caliph or caliphate or isis again as we saw them a couple years back but having a massive province out of control is not something anyone wants in their country. Okay, brilliant. Hopefully things get better. Um, thank you very much, Russia. Is there anything else you want to say before we wrap this up? Uh, yeah, I would like to just point at when we the point at the counter countering violent extremism, the CVE programs that usually talk about the rhetoric and the discourses used and how to counter thoughts, and that's all very important. But when we're talking about the Islamic State, um, when it's in its uh, in its habitual uh, state, that's what I would call them, because I I genuinely believe that the caliphate and its establishment, that was like out of the norm, that was the exception. The norm is when they operate in these sort of underground networks. That's That's been going on for over a decade now, and this, is, this will continue. We need to look at that they're not operating um, in a very significant way. They're operating the same way any mafia or any gang does. And we see replicants of this in similar uh, opera- modus operandi in South, Af- South America, and we see it in Africa as well in different places. And they should be also tackled within this, as they should be tackled as a gang, I guess I'm trying to say, not as the Islamic State of Iraq. So we don't need to necessarily look so deeply into what is their religious uh, rhetoric at this point it doesn't really matter. You don't need a fatwa to kidnap someone or to take ransom. That happens in different places. And Iraq needs to definitely strengthen its interior forces. They need to be less politicized and less polarized. Um, sectarianism and politics in general should not ever have to play a role in this. I believe this is the only thing that can really take us, you know, kind of to the next level where, where the Islamic State is kind of a thing of the past and no longer a real threat. Okay. And where can people get hold of you and contact you, follow your work? So I'm uh, currently a Robert A. Fox Fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute, um, FPRI, and my work. You can follow my work there at fpri.com. I also manage Raise Your Voice, or as it's as it. It's pronounced in Arabic, it's an Arabic-based website, the content's all in Arabic, but we focus on communities in um, in Iraq and in Syria, specifically communities that have, that have been traumatized by war and how they're just coping with their um, with their current circumstances. We address their issues and we also like shed a light on, 
a lot of the humanitarian stories and triumphs that are coming in from these areas. I'm on Twitter a lot, obviously. You can follow me there at uh, Rasha Aqidi. That's R-A-S-H-A-A-L-A-Q-E-E-D-I. And and thanks so much for having me on Popular Front. So that was Russia Al-Akidi speaking about ISIS, how they rose up in Mosul, how they took over, and how they're still there despite the uh, operation to get rid of them. If you like what we're doing here at Popular Front, please do consider supporting on the Patreon. There's bonus episodes, all sorts of extras regularly on there. That is patreon.com slash popularfront. Or if you don't like Patreon, which is understandable, go to popularfront.co slash support. There are many different ways you can uh, support us there. Even just sharing this and telling your mates is really useful. The new Popular Front documentary is out now. It's called uh, Ukraine's Anarchist Underground. We follow a group of anarchists violently fighting back against the neo-fascist militias and also the government to some degree. Go to popularfront.co slash underground to watch that or go to the YouTube, youtube.com slash popularfront. You'll be able to find it. It's on top of the page. Please do share it. Let us know what you think because uh, unfortunately the scum at YouTube have age-restricted the documentary. Now, the, do- the the reason for this, they say, is that there's violence shown in the documentary. Sky News, BBC News and Vice News all have uh, very gory um, uh, dispatches up on their YouTube pages. But surprise, they haven't been age-restricted. Now, because Popular Front is not a big uh, corporate beast of a company with... Uh, coke heads running it we have been age restricted that is the disgusting platform that is youtube basically if you've got money and you can grease their fucking palm then you can kind of get to the front of the queue and jump all the restrictions so censorship is bullshit um but yeah we are we do have to kind of be on youtube because it is the biggest platform and the other platforms you know are kind of overrun with fascists and conspiracy lunatics so unfortunately for now we have to stay on the youtube but yeah uh, my point is please do share it because we are being censored to some degree I mean you could argue that age restriction isn't a censorship issue but I, I personally think that it is um, and there's absolutely no need for it when these other companies are not getting age restricted for what much worse in their videos you know anyway if you want to follow popular front uh, follow me on Twitter that's uh, Jake underscore Hanrahan H-A-N-R-A-H-A-N or follow us on the popular front Twitter that's popular front C-O or follow us on Instagram, instagram.com slash popular.front. Thank you very much to the following people on the Patreon. Without you, none of this would be possible. Um, we're doing everything on a shoestring, but you know we do need a little bit of money to get moving places. So thank you very much to Darby, Adam Berg-Snyder, Margaret Bowling, Axel Iverson, Brian McLaughlin, Chad Walker, Dan Dunham, Daniel Shearer, Diana Gorvenek, Elizabeth Benicki, Emily Molly, Fletcher Tate, Jack Mayhoff, funny guy, James from the Discord, Joanne Stocker, Joel Tambusi, Kyle N. Payne, Lawrence Abrahams, LH, Michael Euler, Ari, Patrick Bronte, Peter McCormick from What Bitcoin Did, Q-Ball, our very own Russia Alakidi, Ryan Sandercock, Skartoon, Scott Jonesy, Sebastian from the Discord, Sarushe Hawazi, Teddy, Tom Lochrin, Tony Bin, Vida Provost, and Zachary Hinch. Thank you very much. Like I said, without 
your help, this uh, wouldn't really go anywhere. Um, Popular Front, we're trying to do another documentary soon, so if you want to help support us, uh, as Anthony Kabarik did, friend of Popular Front, helped us get off to Ukraine, please do consider supporting, as I said, popularfront.co slash support. Music in this episode, the intro was by Home and the outro was by Son of Old. His SoundCloud is soundcloud.com slash son dash of dash old. And all of the, well, he makes all the music for Popular Front and the music that is available, i.e. it's not exclusive to stuff we're going to be doing in the future, is available to listen to on his SoundCloud. So please, please, please stop asking me, what's that song? What's this song? Go to soundcloud.com slash son dash of dash old. If we've put it up uh, available, then it's there for you. If not, it's not. 